welcome to Your Property Podcast. Today is Friday the 20th of March. My name is Michelle Cairns, your host for today, along with Ang Harrod. Owen, hi Ang Harrod. Hello. Hi. So uh, we also have Neil Chowdhury on. So hi, hi Neil. Hi Michelle, thanks for pronouncing my name correctly. Phew, phew. I literally, was, I was saying it and thinking, oh my God, I'm Jack. Uh, so glad I uh, did that, right? So um, what we're going to do is we're going to speak to Neil about his thoughts about what's going on at the moment uh, with the uncertainty in, in the world and get his thoughts and feedback on uh, how, you, how Neil sees it, you know, what's happening on the ground. Um, we'll have a sort of brief discussion about that and then we're going to move on to talk about um, you know who who he is and his content and uh, Neil's got some fantastic uh, fantastic content really really useful ideas to be sharing with you guys so uh, we're very excited to have him on the podcast so Neil thank um, you Michelle the world's yeah. gone mad um how are you doing yes how are you how are you how are you processing <laughs> yeah, it's, been, it's um oh it's been very very surreal and very worrying for for many people say so my father and my wife both work in hospitals as well so they're still going into work as normal and, and trying to help with patients so it's even more kind of concerning for them um, in terms of how we're coping with our properties well we're generally student landlords we have a, a large student portfolio and um, it's kind of quite usual really for them in terms of the rents and um, campuses are still open although they've reduced they've tried to go to more online so our students are still uh, in their houses at the moment so I'm, I'm sure that's going to change over the coming days and week but we haven't been affected in the same way that many other tenants and, and landlords have been. Mm. I was going to say do you, um, have you noticed that any of your students have like started to go home at all? So they, they may have done, they haven't notified us that they've left the premises or gone home yet. Um, I think it's inevitable that, that they will once, I think they're just waiting on a bit more clarity as well from the universities in terms of their assessment dates as well, because mm. they're now likely to be pushed further back. So, um, so they may well need to extend their stay in our, in our properties or, or they might go home now and then come back later on. So uh, just like everyone else, I'm sure we'll, we will have to be flexible um, with our arrangements and our contracts. But uh, as things stand right now, it's, it's relatively usual, you know, in, given the current situation. Uh, they're obviously contractually obliged to, uh, to keep paying that you know, you're expecting a payment about April time for the next term. That, that's right. So our students uh, say it's March 20th today. We, they've paid their rents through till the end of April already. Then their final instalment for this academic year is on due on the 1st of, uh, 1st of May. Um, so we'll just see how monitor the situation then. And, you know, we will be as flexible as we can be. Uh, with, with those kinds of things. Um, I don't think their student finance is affected. They'll still be completing their degrees. It's just more of their lectures are now have moved to online. So I don't quite think they'll be as affected in the same way that many other people who, who are working um, are, are affected. Um, how about yourself? Like, how are you coping as a, as a person? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I've been okay because I tend to work from home anyway. So uh, it's been quite usual for me. I'm just more concerned really for, for family members who are still having to go out and work in, in, in hospitals mainly, you know, that they're, they're out there dealing, dealing with patients on a daily basis. So, um, 
you know they're they're much more likely to be uh, to be affected. Uh, but it is very challenging. Um, it's, I mean, such a huge change to to the market generally, um, not just the property market, but the whole economy. Um, the government's just announced so much quantitative easing over the past past day or two. It's going to have, you know, it, it will have long term effects because people now learning to work from home, businesses suddenly will have to adapt, get in the times with technology, and maybe that will make certain parts of the business more efficient moving forward and they'll try and retain some of those aspects as well um so it could be a real game changer in terms of the way people work and work habits generally yeah i've got a theory that it's gonna sort of prove i suppose how many office jobs are so unnecessary i had an office job like a part-time one a few years ago and i turned up and i was just like why am i here it's all done on the computer i could do this at home i don't need to go to the office to do what I'm doing and I'm sure that plenty of other people feel like that and sort of now that they're yeah I think to work uh, from home, I guess. yeah I think zoom is going to be very popular over the next next few months moving forward um, yeah. we know... were talking about having our book club over zoom the other <laughs> <day>. <laughs> I think like uh, offices are doing virtual offices on zoom where I was speaking to uh, to Dan Hill about this the other day and he's all of his offices are they just go into work as usual, but remotely from their homes over Zoom. And then they're all just muted on camera over Zoom. And if someone needs to ask a question, they just unmute themselves. And... Oh, that's interesting. So it's actually yeah, live all the time. So it's live all the time. Oh, so there's okay, accountability right. there. Um, people can still feel like they've got some kind of social interaction with their work mm, colleagues. They can good. ask questions. So like Dan's so efficient with everything. He, he's adapted straight away to that. And um, and I think if if a lot of your businesses run efficient anyway and cloud based, you can still cope. Obviously, things are different. Um, you'll have to evolve uh, as as things evolve. But you know you're in a much better position uh, already. Absolutely, it'd be really interesting to see the shift to online and just the virtual world, really. Uh, and obviously, it's just massively kicked off now, but. I mean, what are you are you moving anything in particular? Obviously, meetings are going to go onto Zooms, but is there anything else that you're seeing is happening or that you're implementing to put things in place to make life easier? Yeah, so something that we've been meaning to do for for many months actually, and this will force us to do it, is our bookkeeping. For example, we are just going to go straight onto Zero and Receipt Bank and just make that completely cloud-based. Over the next few weeks, I imagine I'll have a bit more time to uh, mm-hmm. to kind of get caught up with that and to get that in the swing of things. But generally, um, we we run things quite efficiently, I'd say anyway. Yeah. Um, so so we're in a in a better position than some large companies who have maybe done things more traditionally for for many years definitely. Um, yeah it's a real wake-up call for, for them yeah it'll definitely show those holes I was at the dentist the other day and literally the girl was there handwriting everything out in the book and I was just thinking oh, you know yeah, yeah. um good luck with uh, getting all that on online um but I think is there anything else you want to sort of mention around this in terms of you know it would just feel it's important to acknowledge what is going on now um but I, I, you know like you say things are happening by the hour by the day and yeah you know we, no, nobody knows though some of the things we're sort of talking about are just hypothetical what ifs um mm. and it, also but like maybe by next week 
everything that we've said is yeah, like completely is. obsolete anyway. Yeah, this no, could be like, it's... yeah, be released and it's like, what are they even talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's hope it, it is, yeah. is like that rather than uh, yeah. getting worse. But no, it's just, just really difficult. I just hope everyone stays safe and, and um, stays healthy during this difficult mm. time. Great. Okay, Absolutely. thank you. Yeah, definitely. Okay, okay so... Back to normal life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, do you want to just introduce yourself uh, first of all, your property background and how you got into property? Have you always been in it, or as I say, no? So yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on today. I'm really, really grateful for that. And uh, just as a brief introduction, my name's Neil Chowdhury, as you pronounced the uh, correctly pronounced earlier. Um, and I've been uh, pretty much in property for the last two years or so. And actually, prior to that, I was a professional golfer. So golf was my life for many, many years. Um, started when I was a junior and started to win some national events as a junior for my age group um, and then as I kind of became 18, 19 I got into the uh, England men's team as well so I had the fortune of traveling uh, really all over the world managed to compete um, on six different continents um, and I managed to win, win a few tournaments kind of worldwide as well uh, as an amateur and then as a professional things didn't work out so well for me um, never quite made it to the highest level. Um, I won a couple of events which were televised on, on Sky Sport and that was really the highlight for me. Um, but yeah, my last two or three years as a priority were, were a real struggle, uh, mainly with injuries actually. And um, I no, never really had much regular income from, from golf. Like it varied so much from month to month. That, that was one of the main things that really attracted me to property was the fact that once the properties are up and running, um, ex except in extreme circumstances like this, it's, it's generally uh, the, the rent comes in as, as clockwork and you can really forecast your cash flow uh, every month. And um, what was the point where, you know, that you decided, okay, now's the sort of change and the shift into property? Yeah, so I it was in 2016, actually. Um, I was really struggling with the back injury. I had to stop golfing altogether. Um, we just remortgaged our house. So we had a bit of capital release from our own house, which we wanted to invest. And we were looking, I say we, it's my wife, Simona and myself. We we're looking uh, at potential business opportunities. We we're looking at franchises. We weren't really sure where we wanted to go. Um, but I had a bit of experience in property in the sense that I used to help or I still do help to manage my, my parents have a small portfolio. So I had a bit of experience with that, but never really much more than just like looking after uh, portfolios really. So I started to read on, read some property books and, and read Property Magic, which was real eye opener for me, a very inspirational book. Um, and that really inspired me to, to look further into property. Um, and actually off the back of reading that, I went and did a, did a bit of training, did, did the three-day mastermind accelerator with, with Simon, Simon Zucci, who wrote the book. And um, literally within, I think it was like within one or two weeks, we secured our first first deal, uh -huh. um, which we converted into, it was just a rundown property, which we converted into a high-end student house, um, just to test the market really, just to dip our feet in, see if, if we like the student market. Um, and it, it, yeah, that, that, that property's worked, worked really well. And that's kind of inspired us to, to continue doing the student, student market. What made you sort of choose to do the student market and the HMO strategy in, in general over all the others that are available? Yeah, so for us, we really wanted to go for high cash flowing strategy. Um, 
So single lets just didn't really work for us because we, we did want the property to eventually be our main source of income. And with single lets, it just the margins were a bit, bit too tight, really. And in 2016, the government just announced Section 24 and the changes to to tax allowance and interest relief. So even more so, really, we needed to make sure um, we went for a high cash flowing strategy. And in- interestingly, we thought we were going to go down more of a young professional route um, with the HMOs. But actually, being a first time landlord entering the HMO market uh, was was quite tricky. But there were some lenders at the time who still may have this policy where they allowed you to have up to five tenants as long as they're on one contract. They didn't mind using it as a HMO. In fact, we notified them that we're using property as a HMO. So that's absolutely fine as long as tenants are on one contract. And that's how student contracts tend to be. They do tend to be on one AST. So that was when we made the decision on, on our first property to to rent it out to students rather than to professionals. It was just to get our foot in the ladder, become experienced HMO landlords, and then the HMO market would open up to us in terms of the mortgage market. Um, but we like the student market a lot, so we've, we've continued to do that. Fair enough. And, you know, you're a bit humble before saying you've done a bit of training. <laughs> you've actually done the uh, the 12-month mastermind. And, oh, and, you know, that's <laughs> old, just a bit of training. <laughs> oh, sorry, and... yeah, sorry. I, yeah, I did continue to go on to the, <laughs> the mastermind. And, uh, and and did very very well in it. Um, you know, you're one of the uh, sort of celebrities in the in the community that right. have um, you know you've made a name for yourself in uh, in what you've sort of your strategy in adding value and looking at the sort of valuation side of things. And you're the sort of go-to person in the community for anyone who's interested in valuations. So oh, can right. you Thank tell you, us a bit? Michelle, yeah. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> tell us more about you know how you sort of realized this was an opportunity and, and what you did um, to maximize it. Yeah. So actually uh, I'm so glad you mentioned it because it saved me having to blow my own trumpet actually. But, um... <laughs> That's what we're here for. <laughs> so we could just see your ego getting a bit bigger. <laughs> so, so actually that first property, we, we, it was run down and we bought it and we did, uh, it was actually a relatively light refurb looking back. It felt very substantial at the time. You know, obviously our first refurb and, and the stresses that come with it. But looking back, it was a relatively light refurb because there was no structural work or no um, extensions and things like that. But we were able to add huge value to that property. Um, did the refurb. So we bought that for 180. We spent 17500 on the refurb and it got revalued at £250,000. So oh, a real really? big uplift in terms of every pound we spent versus how much that got revalued at. What did you spend the 17 on to get such a big... So uh, we replaced the kitchen and just made it HMO compliant, really. You'll replace all the door frames and fire fire doors, put all those in, emergency lighting, smoke detectors, just make it HMO compliant. Um, That was one of the other reasons, actually, we decided to go down the student market, is we do very high-end student accommodation, but we generally don't put en suites in. We try and add shower rooms wherever we can, but we find that students who are taking our houses tend to be groups of friends who uh, are sharing a house, so they don't mind sharing facilities. Very different mindset to individual tenants coming into to a HMO. And they actually prefer to have larger rooms, larger desks in the rooms, and, um, and things like that, and a large communal area rather than trying to squeeze in as many en suites as possible. Um, so that really helps to keep our um, refurb costs down. 
So that's how we managed to keep that one so low. So um, did you what what year did you buy that in? So that one we bought in 2016, and uh, we we waited two years to revalue that. So we did benefit from a bit of capital appreciation right, as well. And but was since, that um, so that was valued purely on commercial on the rental? No, so that one it wasn't actually. It was bricks and mortar. Right, um, okay. So we find certainly in Leicester. So now we 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 buy on a bridge, we do the works and we refinance straight away. So, you know, sometimes as soon as three or four months after purchase, but that particular one, because I was planning to go back to golf and in, indeed I did go back to golf after buying it. It was never really our intention to refinance it quickly. So, um, so we just did the traditional mortgage routes and waited till the end of our fixed term. Um, but when we did come to refinance that one, that was my first attempt at producing a valuer pack. You know, I'd heard of these things called called valuer packs um, before, and I thought, well, what can I do to really help to to prove the uplift of the property in you know in a relatively short amount of time, in a couple of years? So I put together um, a valuer pack, and and I'm sure we'll talk more about that uh, as we go on today. Did you ha- go? Uh, did you do the refurb? and have the sort of two years, was it a planned value add uh, or was it just by chance and then you thought, wow. Yes, that- uh, yeah, you're right. So that one, we weren't thinking too much. We just wanted to create a really nice um, house for, for our tenants, for our students. And we weren't thinking so much about the end value at the time. Right. My mindset's shifted massively since then because now, you know, every pound we spent, we really think how much is that going to get revalued at? So mm-hmm. there's been a real mindset shift, but that one kind of made me realize just mm-hmm. how much potential there is to, to add value to properties. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that you do a lot on um, like decor as well. So you have like the nice feature walls and you have um, like nice tiles and you sort of invest in the kitchen and make it like, you know, nice. Um, how much do you think that has an effect on the, end value does it make a difference having a nice wallpaper compared to just having you know paint (laughs) so interestingly it it forms a part of it so um there are lots of aspects to adding value and in fact i've kind of got like a 10 step thing that i Mm -hmm. uh, or, or 10 ways of adding value and refurbishing is just one of those ways and obviously refurbs can vary so much if you put them out on a spectrum you can have you know, just going around with magnolia paint and replacing the carpets to doing the type of stuff that we do, which are really uh, striking feature walls and, and, and high end. But they do have an impact, yeah, because um, they help you achieve higher rents as well and can, can achieve, can, you can achieve significantly higher rents. So if you're going for a commercial revaluation, that has a huge effect. Where do you draw the line? That's sort of the question I sort of ask myself when... You know, I'm looking at this tile, tile A, tile B, tile C. Like, I think, well, you know, the most expensive tile is going to look the best. And, you know, you want to achieve the top rents. But, so, you know, yeah, it's, there's definitely a sweet spot there. But we find actually you don't have to spend that much more um, to achieve that high look for a right. property, that high end mm-hmm. look. Um, so we put, put in beautiful looking kitchens, like really large kitchens with over 12 units and double ovens and you know they look really incredible they are high quality but we never spend more than three grand on actually purchasing a kitchen and that's fully factory assembled 
could you please tell my boyfriend that because he wants to spend 10 grand on a kitchen oh, that's yeah that's i mean there's so many opportunities for landlords there's so many schemes out there that you don't have to spend that much to um that's what i said <laughs> the way we we we're really strict with our actual build costs themselves but we do tend to spend more when it does come to decorating it uh, we spend slightly more than we probably uh, or than, than most investors probably would but that's where we if we can achieve an extra 10 pounds per person per week rent on a six bed hmo that's like three thousand pounds per year more you know it, it really is worthwhile doing and that more than pays for itself so if you spend an extra two or three grand on the end finish of the property you know, right at the end of the project when you're redecorating it, we feel like it's 100% on return on investment on that additional money that we spend. Um, so that's that's the view that, that we take. And then in terms of re revaluing it, that's one of the aspects that they look at. Um, there are many other aspects as well, which, which uh, hopefully we'll be able to go through today as well. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was my next question in terms of where does the uh, the refurbishment sit in the order of priorities and the return on investment in comparison to some of the other areas? You know, if people have got a limited pot of money, where, you know, where's the best place to allocate those funds to maximise? Right. That's, that's a really good question. So um, the high ticket items in a house are generally the kitchens and, and the shower room. So we will pretty much always replace those and make those look really nice because that's they're deemed the most expensive parts to replace. Um, but as we've just said, if you're good with your procurement, you can source these stuff. Uh, you know, you don't have to spend, spend the earth to do them, do them up. Uh, we don't go for the cheapest ranges. We don't go, certainly with our shower rooms, for example, um, you know, we don't go for the cheapest showers or anything. But again, we're very careful with, with how we spend that money. But we try and lay the rooms out in a way that makes them very attractive. And uh, and then we go from there. Great. And, um, okay, so do you want to give us a, you know, as much as you're happy to share, uh, sort of, you know, secret tips. I know you, um, you know, you've spent a lot, of, a lot of time and effort and, you know, your value pack is something of, you know, uh, people people are sort of clambering to get hold of this piece of um, value pack um you're talking so, about yourself there michelle yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's hoping that if she sweet talks talk to you enough just email one over no i would never no, do that very... you know it's, it's a lot of work that's gone into it and um so i you know just whatever you feel comfortable in oh, sharing. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm happy to share share as much as I can, just to give uh, as much value as it were to, to people. So, so value of packs essentially um, are a way for you to show the uplift. So we've got examples of properties where we've bought bought properties, refurbished them, you know, really thrown a lot of people on, on the works to get the refurbishment done quickly and then refinance the properties three or four months later. And sometimes they've been revalued 120 grand more than we bought it for just a few months before. Um, and without the value of packs, it, it would be really hard to justify such a huge uplift in such a short amount of time. So, um, so there are five, well, six key areas really to a value of pack. And the first one that I always do is I prove the rental demand for the area. 
So I really talk up the location. Um, if it's in an Article 4 area, you really hammer that point home that you've got HMO in an Article 4 area. And that's particularly important if you're going for a commercial revaluation. Um, I talk about things like how close it is to a city centre, the population of city centre, and I name some major employers in the area and the distance they are away. Name things like universities, teaching hospitals, that kind of stuff. So I really go into a lot of detail to help to prove that the property is in an area of strong rental demand, because that's uh, really an important thing when a value is coming to value the property, they want to make sure that you're not going to struggle to, to fill the rooms. And that, and that reassures the lender as well. So that's where I tend to start. Um, I will include things like a map of the area, particularly if it's an Article 4 area. Um, I'll include a, a map. Like in Leicester, for example, we have three designated areas of Article 4. Um, so I'll just, just put on there and I'll highlight our property on there as well. The next thing I do is... Um, I keep this section relatively brief, so like one page long, but I'll describe the high ticket items of the property or of the refurb. Um, particularly, so we, we add a lot of floor space to our properties these days. We, we always make sure we go into the loft, we go backwards wherever possible with single story rear extensions. Um, so when you're adding floor space, that's a really great way of, of adding value. That's, that's one of the best ways to add value, in fact. Because if you're doing refurbs that are costing you, you know, it might be costing you 12, 1300 pounds to add, add a square meter to a property. But that money spent will get revalued at two, in Leicester, for example, it will get revalued at 2000 pounds per square meter. And in fact, if you're in a really expensive area where you're struggling to get deals to stack, um, properties are getting revalued much, much higher, you know, 3,000, 4,000 pounds per square meter. So it's actually in more expensive areas, it's easier to add value by, by adding floor space. So, um, so that's something I really hammer home if I've added any floor space. Um, another high ticket items are things like rewiring, renewing all the pipe work to 22 mil, for example, replacing boilers, kitchens, shower rooms just go back to that the uh the pipe work oh sorry I, for people who don't understand like what is the benefit of the pipes i was oh, just right, so... as if like yeah yeah totally know what you're talking about <laughs> well here i'm going to show my ignorance now as well but <laughs> so basically we, we like to put in double convector radiators and and bigger and, and newer boilers as well and quite often the existing pipe work if it's an old house can't take that new pressure so um, pipework needs to be renewed and it, from my understanding, it needs to be renewed from 15 mil to 22 mil. So that's generally what we do in our properties to accommodate uh, the new central heating system. Um, and again, that stuff sounds really complicated, really expensive, but if you incorporate it as part of your build costs and you agree the price beforehand, um, it doesn't really cost, cost that much. But in a value pack, when you're trying to prove the uplift, it really does help to show that you've, you've literally done everything to the property. Uh, and that's the same, same with the rewire as well. If you're planning to replaster all throughout anyway, you know, just, just get in and, and upgrade the electrics, if, you know, if they warrant it. It's, it's money well spent. Um, so, so yeah, so I described the high, high ticket items, but again, I try and not go on and on about these. I try and summarize them into a page. Um, something else, a little tip is if you do improve the EPC and the energy efficiency of the property um, and, and central heating and things like that, and, and you, you can really raise your EPC, 
EPC score up, I'll mention that as well. Would you do a before and after EPC certificate? I do. So I have uh, a lot of supporting documents and that's, that's one section of my supporting documents as well, but that's slightly separate to the value of pack. That's just like a supplementary document. So, uh, so that's good. And also on the EPC, it tends to show the floor space, excuse me, tends to show the floor space um, in the top right-hand corner of the EPC. So if you've added floor space as well, um, that helps to show that you've increased the floor space as well, because you can see the difference between the before and the after. Um, although if a value is doing their job, which I'm sure they'd do professionally, they would, they would come and measure anyway. But you know that just helps to reassure them that you have added the floor space. Okay. So so that's yeah. So that's the kind of the first two sections of my value of pack. I hammer home the strong rental demand, and then I describe all the high ticket items as well. When you say hammer home the rental demand, do you put, you know, screenshots of spare room on or? No, I don't actually. I, it's just more the geographical location of the property. The industry and why, or? Yeah, and why it's in an area of strong rental demand. And that's the key for all of us anyway, especially when times get tough. We want to make sure mm. our HMOs or any of our rental properties are going to get fully, fully let out and are in areas of strong rental demand. So hopefully we're all doing that anyway but it's mm. important to, to try and prove that especially with um, commercial valuers they tend to be panel valuers and they're not necessarily even from the same city that you live in they might be yes. coming from a different city yes and although they may do lots of valuations in your city don't assume that they know where the no. university is no. or where a teaching hospital is where a large employer is um it's, it's just yeah. go go in with the assumption that that they don't necessarily know uh, the location as well as you do and on that note um i had one valued recently and the i mean the pack is considerable it's a, a huge thick pack that they give you at the end the report oh the commercial valuation yeah, yeah. it's massive and you think god you know you, you know what you pay you think there's a lot of work that's actually gone into this so yeah. I, I'm guessing, I'm interested in how do the valuers respond to your pack? Because I've heard a lot of talk about people saying, oh, they don't even look at it because they're too busy. And basically they think that they tr you're trying to influence them. And then there's other people like yourself who said, I mean, I spoke to a friend recently and he said the, the actual value was really grateful for it because essentially it should save them a lot of work if you've done all of the so a little tip there is I, I know exactly where you're coming from there um, because technically their values are not supposed to accept any hard copies of anything so what I always make sure I do is I email the pack beforehand like at least a day preferably two or three days beforehand and I, I never call it a value pack it's just an information pack or a project overview because that's really what it is it's just an overview of everything that you've done to the property and um, it, with commercial values it's very easy to uh, to email them and and genuinely like I'm I don't feel like I'm trying to influence the, the value it's just mm. I'm presenting everything that Evidence, I've done yeah because I've bought the property for 200 grand and all of a sudden I'm trying to get it revalued at 320,000 pounds. Well, this is why, you know, this is all the works that I've done. And the, um, the evidence, did you, do you provide comparables for the area as well? I do. And I'm going to come on to that. That's okay. kind of the sixth, the sixth thing. Oh, okay. But I do that as a separate, uh, okay. separate document, but I do, I do provide that. 
But interestingly, actually, if you're, I do value packs at the time of purchase sometimes as well for bridging finance. And that's not something that's secretive. We get requested that by our lenders and by the valuers. They want to see what it is that you're planning to do to the property. And they even ask you for comparable uh, data as well, just so that you know, um, provide evidence that you know what you're doing in the market, you know your local market well. So um, yeah, there's nothing really secretive about it. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just the evidence you're you're providing data. You're not there's no uh, BS in there. You know, mm -hmm. it's just all genuine stuff that you've done to the property. Fair enough. So uh, yeah, I wouldn't be too too stressed about that. Just the tip is to make sure you um, you email it out in advance, which is actually easier said than done to um, to always get their email address. But yeah, if so you can try and do that through. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> if you're providing a value pack at the time of purchase, uh, is that something that sort of everybody should be doing? Because I'm just like we're we're both in the process of like actually buying our house now. And I'm just oh, right, okay, that's great. Need, no, 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 no. It's it's not at all. It's just <laughs> just if you're bridging, basically. So one of the important things when you're bridging is that you can exit off your bridge, mm -hmm. and valuers coming in with two heads almost they want to come and value the property now but they also want to work out what the property is likely to be valued once you've done your works as well so you just need to um just show them what your intentions of the property are so if if we've already got architect drawings at that stage we'll show you things like that um i will show you some comparables so my bridging packs tend to be a lot lot more concise you know maybe only a few pages long whereas my actual post refer value packs uh like 80 80 pages plus <laughs> they're really mm -hmm. really detailed but in um, our case you know we, you know so this is for your own house want, for you guys living yeah we want to no. live happily ever, ever after with our three cats <laughs> <laughs> no that's no that's no it, like that's that's completely different so we actually had our our own house remortgage uh, revalued yesterday as well um and i didn't i didn't even do a pack but for for our like buy to lets and bridging and refinancing and things like that. I just, I swear by these, these value packs, I really make sure I do them. But for, for residential properties, it's, it's a completely different story because they're not looking at things like rental demand or, you know, or anything like that. It's just, just more done on, on, on what other properties there are selling for. Picking up on the bridging there, do you use, one company that provides the bridging initially and then stay with them for the exit we do yeah so uh we generally get to the bridge to term um and and interestingly there is they will give you an estimated end value at the time of purchase and don't be surprised if that's lower than you're hoping for you know the deal still needs to stack in case you can't get it revalued more but they're likely to be conservative with that end figure because they don't necessarily know the high standard you're going to do. Mm. They want to be able to see that you can really achieve those rents that you're saying. So they're bound to be quite conservative. And if the deal still stacks there, that's great because you know, realistically, you're likely to potentially be able to get a much higher valuation. And then all of a sudden you're getting a lot more money back out. And so, on the, um, do you, get that higher valuation do you borrow against that higher valuation because i know some i've not done it but um 
there is a way where if they can recognize the increased value, they will lend the 70% loan to so, against that? Oh, oh, no, we, we haven't done that. That's, that's, that's an interesting way of doing it. Um, I think on development finance, that's more, more common in particular. Um, what we tend to do is we try and recycle our own cash, and we've, we've done that quite well over the last year and a half or so, as much as possible. So we tend to be putting our own money in as a deposit and then we just use investor funds because it's much cheaper for us than, than bridging rates. Um, you know, I do like earn and learn and things like that with our investors. Um, and they're, they're happy to come in and see, see the property come to life and be part of the project as well. So that's how, how we do it. And then when we refinance, we know we're getting all of our refurb costs back out plus, plus a lot more. So we can repay our investors with interest and then we get uh, certainly the vast majority of our own cash back out to, to go again as well. Is there a minimum margin that you, you know, you've sort of worked out in your head or on a spreadsheet that says this property needs to have a minimum of 25% value? So, yeah, so we, we go for a minimum ROI of 40% on our deals. So we know, it, worst case, if we have a lot of money left in, at least it's, earning that kind of return on investment um so the ro so um obviously the roi at the end yeah sorry that's post post works yeah so works roi my muscle brain's now kicking in um in terms of like a margin for value it do you work is that a factor so is there like we have to add seventy-five thousand pounds for example margin or is it just on the roi so I do it on the ROI and the cash flow as well. I'm conscious I don't want to say too much about how much I'm earning, but we, we have high margins on our on our properties. Okay. Um, yeah, they're, they're the high margins, like over £1,500 per, per month yeah. Yeah. Um, per property and sometimes a lot more. So that's kind of what, what we go for. We're able to get the vast majority of our cash back out. It's, it's hard to get all of your money back out, you know, you hear people talking about that, no money left in. But in reality, when you factor in things like the stamp duty, and if, especially if you're doing bridging, you've got three lots of legals, in fact, when you're bridging, because you've got your own legals between you, between your solicitor and the seller's solicitor. Your solicitor then has to act um, for you with the bridging lender as well. So that's the second lot of legal fees, plus the bridging lender you're generally having to pay for their legals as well. So um, so that can be quite expensive. Bridging rates are quite expensive as well. So if you do factor in all of those mm-hmm. things, plus if you've got investor funds and, and paying them interest, um, you get a, a real true picture of how much you've spent. You know, it's a lot more than what you're just spending on, on the actual refurb element itself. No, I think it's a really important these... point, yeah. It's... Yeah, hidden, so, hidden costs that people just they don't. Are, they are hidden costs, and yeah. a lot of them are fixed costs as well. So, yeah. so even though we're refinancing within three or four months um, on some projects, uh, which reduces our interest, you know, we're not on bridging for long. We still have those fixed costs at the outset, you know, those those loads of legals and, and the stamp duty and things like that, um, which you know, which, which is expensive. So our main priority always when we're refurbishing is that we're definitely going to get the property revalued um, and be able to pull enough money back out that we've got all of our refurb costs back out. But in reality, we've, we've been able to achieve um, a, a lot more than that. We've been able to pull out um, much more than that. 
but that's working, that's one of the keys. Yeah, sorry, Ingrid. Sorry, I was going to say that working backwards from the numbers. So we've talked a lot about um, sort of the valuation and the work that involved. Like, so go like I guess to the the start. Like, do you have a set criteria of houses of of house that you look for? You know, or are you sort of open to anything and then on the viewing you go, oh, this is how we can add value in this particular house. So we're we're really really um, focused with our target area. Like literally, I can uh, our houses are all next to each other. They're all they're all on roads <laughs> that are next to one another. Like our, our cleaners can literally walk from one house straight to the other house. It's, they're, they're very confined and very close because we in, invest uh, close to universities. So you know they have to be close to campus. So it makes it harder for us in some ways because we're limiting our opportunities, our buying opportunities, but it also makes it much easier for us to do really detailed due diligence. So I kind of know my, my side of town really well and my market quite well. So I know before I've even punched the numbers into a spreadsheet, really, that if it's, if the deal is going to stack up or not. Um, and then I'm also quite sad as well. Like I look at, <laughs> look at things like price per square meter. So we're generally buying at 14 <laughs> to 1500 pounds per square meter. And then our properties are getting revalued at, at £2,000 per square metre. Um, and that's regardless, actually, if it's bricks and mortar or, or commercial, they, they both tend to get valued um, at £2,000 per square metre. And then we know it's costing us about £150 per square metre on the refurb. So there's quite a high margin there. Um, and then if we're adding any floor space, that's, that, set, that part of the refurb costs us about £1,200 or £1,300. Um, so it's, it's quite easy for us to work out our, our end values really and our margin um, but I'd say if you're investing in, in areas that are different to you it's, it's probably worthwhile just just to do some basic calculation um, and ha an easy way to work out um, price per square meters for an area is if you go on net house prices or or right move and you just look at properties that have sold on that road or surrounding roads and then you just put those addresses into the EPC register um, you can find the floor space and you can just quickly work out like an average price per square meter for there. And you can see if most properties have sold for or at or around that, that kind of price, or you might occasionally find the odd anomaly like bungalows really skew this because they sell <laughs> for a fortune and you know, they tend to be quite small. I so, don't understand why. <laughs> uh, I think it's just, yeah, it's the age of our society and that's, that's where, there's, there's still high demand for, for those mm. types of properties. But um, yeah, they, they really skew the data. So if, if, if there's anything that's skewing the data, you just take those out. But um, yeah, so that's that's how I do that. So um, moving on then, so uh, I'm conscious we only discussed the first two parts of the value pack. So the third part <laughs> are the before and after floor plans as well. So if I've made any substantial changes to a property, I will put put in before and after floor plans. And um, because we do structural works to our properties and, and we do things like putting in new shower rooms and things like that, we always have to have building regs drawing and they just look so, so professional in a value of pack. So I always make sure I put my building regs drawings in and you've got the before and after. So, you know, you're not hiding anything again, you genuinely can show the increase in floor space and the amount of work that's, 
that's happened. And the fourth part of value pack is uh, I, I like to put in a detailed schedule of works. And my schedule works for like a five or a six bed HMO tend, tend to be about 10 or 11 pages long, you know. So unlike earlier where I was telling you to describe the high ticket items and try and keep that one page long, the schedule of works ideally want to be as, as long as possible. Um, and again, you're not lying. Everything you've done is true. But if you just go around your own, like room by room and you list out literally everything you've done down to like replacing skirting boards and door handles, you quickly realize just how much work there is involved in a refurb. And the idea of this is even if the valuer doesn't necessarily read every single line of your scheduled works, they can just look through and say, well, okay, there's, there's been a lot of improvements done to this property. And that's always the key. You're, you're just trying to prove as much disparity between the before and after uh, as possible. And then um, the next bit tends to be quite a long part of my value pack are before and after photos. So again, here it's important to show as much disparity as possible. So um, you want your after photos to look good. If at all possible, you have professional photographer come in and the property is dressed. But quite often when I'm on bridging, I'm looking to get off it quite quickly. So I don't want to spend time, you know, spend a couple of days dressing a property, waiting for the photographer to come, waiting for another couple of days for those to come through and get edited or whatever. And, you know, it just takes time. So I tend to just use my iPhone, to be honest, in landscape view um, for all my after photos. And, uh, and I just put those into, into the value pack. But ideally, if you had the time, you'd have professional photos afterwards. And one thing I'd say there that's really important is because you're not, when you buy a property, you're not sure which of your after photos are going to look best or which angle from the room they might look best. Ideally, you want your before and after photos to be from the same um, position in the room. So when you get the keys for your property, the first thing I always do is I go and take loads of photos of every part of the house and I take them from different camera angles and I take them from different perspectives as well. So I, I just tend to take them on my iPhone. So I hold them, I, but I keep saying iPhone, by the way, I'm not trying to promote them. But <laughs> <laughs> there are other phones available. <laughs> iPhone is but, the superior phone. <laughs> <laughs> Whichever your preferred smart, smartphone provider is, you just uh, hold them portrait view and landscape view and then, uh, yeah, go from there. And then once you've got your after photos, you see which ones look best. And you can just put them in. And again, this is all honest stuff. It's all genuine stuff and improvements that you've made to your valuation. So you'll just add those into, into the value pack. So that's kind of the process that I go through. Um, and it's very, very detailed. So that's my value pack. And then the sixth thing is the comparable data. And that's really depends how much detail you want to go into in a comparable with the comparable data. But I, I, as you can imagine, I go into a lot of detail with, with those. What if there's, like, what if there, you, you know, you're setting sort of precedent in the area, so let's say there aren't really many HMOs around, or that there are HMOs, but they haven't been sold, so you don't have that data. Okay, what do you do then? so that's where you rely on a good bricks and mortar valuation. So I, essentially, I'm not a valuer, I'm not a rich surveyor, um, and I'm not a mortgage broker, so like, I'm just 
putting that caveat in there. <laughs> I'm not offering any financial advice here or anything. But um, what I tend to do for bricks and mortar valuations, which most HMO lenders genuinely only give, actually, regardless of the number of rooms, they just tend to value it on a bricks and mortar basis. It's only certain commercial lenders will be willing to give a commercial valuation um, and only on certain types of properties. Generally, for a commercial valuation, property needs to have had some kind of planning gain. So it's in an Article 4 area or it's a large large HMO, like sui generis, seven or more occupiers, which make, you know, something that makes your HMO scarce and unique and something that the neighbour can't necessarily just repeat. Um, so for comparable valuations, the uh, for, for commercial valuations, excuse me, the comparable data is really important. And for bricks and mortar valuations, the comparable data is also very important, but in a different way. And one of the key aspects is the price per square meter. Or I guess we've had Brexit now, so I'll probably have to say price per square foot now. But I still like uh, I, I still operate in, in square meters, um, but in, in, interesting. My value packs, I, I, I put both square feet and square meters. But I, I think and operate in, in meters still. So that's that's the key, really. So you just want to find what properties are selling for by the square meter, and then you can do a like for like comparison. So we've had a couple of high valuations. So the one we had done, uh, it's about three weeks ago. Our last valuation came in really high, and because it was only a five better. Um, we decided not to go with a commercial uh, lender. We just went with, we, we chased the rate, basically. We went with a normal HMO lender that was offering a really cheap rate because we knew that it was going to get valued pretty much the same as a commercial valuation was anyway. So why would we pay like an extra 1% per annum for, for a commercial valuer, well, for a commercial lender, I should say. Um, and I just, I didn't even really give my comparable data was a lot less wide than it would have been for a commercial valuation. Um, and I focus more on price per square meter. And if you've got like a handful of properties nearby, they don't necessarily have to be on the same road, but ideally on the same road or surrounding roads that have sold. Um, and again, I'm not really asking for ridiculous figures on, on my valuations. I'm always realistic with them. Um, but that's that's what I do. I just just look for properties that sell for for a relatively high price per square meter. Yeah, so you'd um, only go with a commercial valuation if you were very confident that you can prove. Obviously, you've you've added the value, um, and it is not a residential property. Um, yeah, so that's that's one thing. Yeah, so if if it's not in an Article Four area or it's not sui generis, say it's like a five or a six bed HMO. If it looks and feels nothing like a uh, single dwelling, like a normal no family house, then then you're you're more likely to get uh, a commercial valuation with a commercial lender because it's it doesn't resemble a single dwelling, but they might rein it back slightly because somebody else can still do what you've done. So somebody could buy the house next door because it's not Article mm. Four spend the money and do what you've done. So they might give you a slight premium, but they'll want to know, they'll assess the premium on how likely it is that an investor would buy your property at a premium rather than just buying the house next door and doing the works themselves. <clears throat> Whereas if you've got that kind of planning gain, Article 4 or something mm. like that, you can, you can really, uh, you've got that scarcity factor. So you're much, much more likely uh, mm. to get that commercial valuation. 
And what about mixed commercial resi valuations? Do you are they do you use them or? Uh, so we've never had to do. Oh, yeah, I say we've never actually have. We have a property that we're converting at the moment into eleven studio flats, and that's um, that's mixed use currently. It's like well, it's empty currently because we're about to start works, but it's. Um, that was commercial on the ground floor with residential flats above and we're converting the whole thing. So you will, you will have to definitely require a commercial valuation on that. And don't be surprised if uh, lenders don't like empty commercial premises really. Um, so you don't be surprised if you've got like an empty shop or something on the ground floor that it gets, um, you know, the valuation gets reined in slightly. So will you try and, uh, secure a lease for that commercial so we, so we, we own the property we've got we've had planning approved already for conversion so so we're we're fine on that one so that's yeah but that deal's fine so we don't have to worry about any any leases or anything like that on on that and that, in fact planning gain is is a fantastic way of, of adding value that's kind of one of my 10 10 ways to add value if you can get a planning gain say that one's like a paper gain at the moment because we haven't done the works but it, it automatically increases the value of the property is if it under get, pd no no we had to go through full planning um it was a slow process it's the expensive process you have to provide so many reports and that one ended up at planning committee so i mm. i actually spoke myself i represented represented oh. uh our own thing so that was a nice experience that was just, <laughs> just before christmas i prepared very hard um and it and it went well so so that was good so that was a nice nice christmas present for us to get, get yeah. planning approved on on what will be a, a fantastic project but we actually we i say it's we're about to start works so let's see what's happening um with uh with the world at the moment yeah, I know. We might just delay the I think, start I think our house purchase is just going to end up like being grown to a halt. <laughs> I think, to be, to be fair, I think a lot of mortgage lenders, solicitors and stuff are just working from home and, and trying the best they can. Obviously, um, it can be a slow process anyway, and it's like yeah. to get even slower now. But yeah, just, just keep keep going, keep chasing everyone on that. Don't, don't just let it kind of... <laughs> fall off their memories so. <laughs> I know. Yeah. but it's sort of ironic because the couple that we bought it from wanted a quick sale <laughs> mm. and um i think we're not sure if it was either downsizing or divorce like we're not entirely sure what the situation was but we don't think that they're going to be sort of moving anytime soon because if there's the whole social distancing thing then i don't know how we're going to be able to like move how yeah it's going to be really challenging for um for the next next few months it's definitely going to be challenging if if you are buying something at the moment then um or, or if you're selling something i think everyone just needs to be prepared for a slight renegotiation i think realistically mm. um and if if you're buying something and you, you're a bit worried and, you, and you're almost embarrassed to ask for renegotiation just think you're still their best chance at getting the best possible sale price because if you pull out it has to go back on the market now, um, you know, in March 2020 now. It's, you know, likely to sell for, for considerably less. Or, yeah, that's if, if at all. trying so, to weigh that up at the moment. It's like a hard call to do, really. Um, but there we are on that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of people who will be 
in difficulties and will want a quick sale and mm. they will be grateful for um for you for your help so there's you know there's bound to be opportunities for a win-win there and uh and you to help people you know solve people's problems so that's you know uh that's what we're in business for so uh just being being ethical with it and if it works for everyone involved and you know i think uh just i think there'll, there'll be an opportunity for creative solutions where people might not be able to sell perhaps because of their mortgages or whatever and purchase lease options and just having a different creative mm. um way of looking at structuring a purchase i think those yeah, I things think will really lease options and probably delayed yeah. completions would be very popular yeah. at the moment Definitely delayed completions um, in particular because people, both buyers and sellers, you know, let's forget um, investors for the time being, but people like like yourself trying to buy, is it, will it be your first house that, that you buy? Uh, it'll be my first house, but it'll be the other half. Like he's already got a portfolio, so it's just another purchase for him. Right. But for, for you guys, it's your like house to live in. It's our first house together. Together, to yeah. In, yeah. So, Exactly. So you're emotionally attached to it. The sellers will want to still sell and um, you can both potentially, once you're ready and your mortgage lender's ready, you could exchange now and just have a, a delayed completion for once things. Because um, mm. usually on residential properties, it's a week anyway, they, they say between uh, exchange and completion, but there's nothing to stop you dragging that out until you know, until this issue is resolved, that, that could be several months down the line. So yeah, that's that you're right. That's probably going to be more popular because it, it, once you've exchanged, it gives both parties the certainty that they need. Um, and, and both parties will, will be massively relieved and then just have to be flexible with, uh, with the completion date. Well, I think that's uh, a good place to wrap up there. Is there any final, um, Thing, comments perhaps we haven't mentioned that you want to bring up or if you'd like to plug any of your oh I did have one more on. question sorry on, yeah. about the value of pack from yes. start to finish because it's, it's quite a long it's, it's quite a lot of information yeah from start to finish how long does it take you I mean you don't just sit down in one afternoon and put it all together no this so the first one I did took me days and days to do now I've got kind of a lot of templates for my mm. comparable data, my schedules of works and things. So it doesn't take me as long. Um, I keep my finger on the pulse in terms of what's going on in the market. So even <clears throat> like a couple of months before I'm planning to refinance, I'm always updating my comparable data sheets. I'm very sad like that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't, doesn't take me that, that long now but it's still you know i still spend a good day to to really present it well and you know it takes time to upload images and um, mm -hmm. i'm doing a ypn article soon and <laughs> forgot just how long it takes to start to <laughs> upload all the images so um yeah so don't leave it till the day before the valuation that's definitely what i would say <laughs> yeah. okay. uh, and a, a couple of other tips i guess for that's the value of pack and it's really important as we mentioned earlier to Try and email that over. If you put all this work in, and the value doesn't even look at it, then um, you know it's a bit disappointing. So if you email it in advance, get confirmation that they've received it. They will open it. They, they will have a look definitely. Um, and then on the valuation day as well, what I tend to do is I have all my certificates, so like HMO license, electric, emergency lighting, fire detection, gas safety, building regs 
boiler installation, EPC, Legionella, all, all those types of certificates that you need, I have printed out. If it's already rented out, if you've already started to get students uh, or tenants in, you know, have copies of ASTs, just making the valuer's life so much easier. And the valuer then won't comment that the solicitor needs to make sure that such and such certificates are in place, these tenancy agreements are in place, all, all those things. So it just helps to speed up, especially if you're getting off bridging. If you've shown the valuer those things, uh, the valuer may not take them away. They may photograph them or they may ask for them to be emailed. Um, and, and generally, I, I do tend to put them in a like a zip folder and email them anyway as supporting documents. But that's something you can do. And also, if you're refinancing a property that's already tenanted, um, just ask, you know, send in a cleaner before the valuation and just have a word with the tenants to make sure that they've got the beds made and stuff, just just to help make a, a nice impression, uh, especially with students. <laughs> so uh, that's that's what we tend to do. Great. And uh, you, you gave me the opportunity to plug myself, yes, didn't you? Yes, go for it. <laughs> go for it. So if anyone um, does want any kind of uh, help on, on, on this topic in particular, um, like, if you look, if you check us out and look at some of the refurbs that we do, um, we do really do specialise in adding value to properties, and uh, and I help my coaching clients like prepare these value packs as well. So if that is something, do feel free to to get in touch. Uh, Neil, oh, where can people come? Yeah, yeah, Neil at Vogabode is is the best thing to email me. That's n e i l at vogueabode.co.uk and um, yeah just just drop me a line and look forward to uh, to hearing from you fantastic uh, thank you for joining us on this uh, Friday morning not that many of us have much to do anyway <laughs> <laughs> no my pleasure I really really enjoyed talking to you it's been uh, been a really nice experience so thank you so much for the invite again and uh, I hope I've not been, been talking too long yeah. here oh <laughs> no, that's great one thing that I am sort of uh, excited for in, in case of potential quarantine or lockdown is that many people will have a lot less excuses to <laughs> be able to be interviewed. Yeah, that's right, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, business as usual here. So everyone's all from the team. They've already been working remotely. That's just how we've done it. So, uh, mm. so yeah, we can... Uh, carry on as normal from this point of view at least anyway so um for everybody listening we will continue to be um yeah like carrying on and, and interviewing people so tune in yeah. and uh find out what's going on in in uh, in the world of property investors on the ground great stuff thank you guys thanks so much thanks. Thanks. fantastic thank you Bye. Bye.